for September 19th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 168. You have a choice, Ryan Gosling. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve from America... Home of television. I'm Matthew Rather. <laughs> Alec Baldwin was supposed to be on this podcast, but when our Fox Network bosses insisted that we cut a Rupert Murdoch phone hacking joke, he, uh, he bowed out like the diva he is. And so it's just the overthinkers here on the podcast here to overthink the Emmys and uh, television and other things that have nothing to do with either of those things um, because we don't often give what's advertised. It's an unadvertised special. It's, it's like one of those sushi, it's like one of those sushi restaurants where you just go in and the chef cooks whatever he wants for you, and all, all you can tell him is, is when to stop. But don't tell us to stop. We're just getting started. <laughs> Panel, your question this week is uh, anything in the new television season that you are looking forward to uh, or, or not looking forward to? Any strong impressions about the new television, about anything, really? How does she do it? Uh, <laughs> no. uh, do you? Do you have anything strong uh, that you feel? Any feeling? It's overfeeling it. Anything strong to say about the new television season that is already underway? Starting wow. first in the alphabet because we are in a weird time paradox where we <laughs> caused the end of the world, we are causing it, and we will cause it. Uh, Matthew Belinky! Oh! I know. I'm sorry. It's like I start every podcast with this sort of feeling of guilt for existing, <laughs> which is I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm Jewish, so I'm sort of used to that. Yeah, I was gonna. Um, I was wondering whether you're gonna make the Jewish joke first, or I was gonna make the Catholic joke. See, first. now I feel guilty for making the Jewish jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and now um, the circle is complete. It's like twelve monkeys, but with with a yarmulke. Anyway. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and answer the open-ended question by, by citing this sort of vague um, uh, uh, waltz already going on between the show Whitney and the show New Girl, neither of which I intend to see. But for a while, I was I was literally confused in the advertising, and I thought that like maybe New Girl was more of like a working title, and then when they came up with a name for the girl, the show was called Whitney. But in fact, New Girl is the Zoe Deschanel show. And Whitney is the girl who's not Zoe Deschanel, but basically both shows based on the the ads that I've seen are about it's sort of an you know like the the eternal complaints about uh, comedies is that the woman always has to be the straight man, she always has to be the wet blanket, that the guys are the funny ones, and the woman always has to be like perpetually annoyed uh, and doesn't get anything funny to do. Um, and that, you know, these, these sort of subverted where it's like Zoe Deschanel is like the wacky one and the guys that she live with are sort of perpetually unsure what to do with this level of wackiness, just hitting them in the face with this full force level five gale of wackiness. Um, and the Whitney appears to be basically the same thing, but the girl is in a relationship, um, where is that? I, I, this is the only difference I could find based on the advertising is that th- there seems to be some sort of boyfriend in the picture. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess the the uh, the rise of our manic pixie dream girl overlords is what I'm looking forward to. Excellent. Uh, now, Pete Fenzel, now you get to go. <laughs> all right. All right. OK. So my favorite development in TV that's going to shape the TV that's watched next year uh, isn't on the, the, the tube per se, but it's the launch of Twitch TV. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Do you guys know Twitch TV? 
You're no, laughing like it you just do. sounds awesome. Just keep going. Uh, <laughs> so Twitch TV is a, is a spinoff brand of Justin TV. Uh, and Justin TV is an online streaming service, right, that, that allows people to put up their own television stations, similar to Ustream. But uh, I think generally speaking, at least in my own experience with the two of them, uh, Justin TV works a lot more smoothly. Their model seems to be getting close to the model for kind of uh, uh, a non-YouTube live broadcast model, right, for, for video content. And um, Twitch TV is their new brand. Well, it's not that new. It came, they launched it in June, but I'm only starting to actually come across things that are really starting to roll on it uh, now. Um, and uh, Twitch TV is their channel for video gaming. And the thing that, that happened with them that I was really excited about this week was when um, the famous StarCraft player, uh, Destiny, uh, Stephen... Uh, Oh gosh, what's his name? Last name I forget what his last name is, but he goes by the name of Destiny. I got involved in a in a uh, in a battle with another StarCraft player named Chef on Twitch TV, and this was the first time I'd heard of Twitch TV, where they raised like uh, twenty five, total of like twenty five or twenty six thousand dollars in a sort of StarCraft off for Doctors Without Borders, which was kind of exciting. Um, cool. And it seemed to me like, I mean, there are other video sharing sites out there, like like uh, Vimeo, like um, uh, gosh, like uh, UStream, as as we were talking about, uh, that they try to get this model that's supposed to be able to just place television out there, uh, but I haven't seen one that's really been doing it in a dedicated way with kind of uh, best practices and, and things that excite me and, and programming that seems to really excite me. And, and so I'm excited for Twitch TV, which is the new brand of Justin TV, and uh, it's about video games because I like watching video game related stuff. So uh, yeah, video game coverage of television and uh, Game of Thrones also. <laughs> but it seems but, kind of but Pete, does Twitch TV have any Manic Pixie Dream Girls and a quirky new comedy? <laughs> it definitely, definitely does. Uh, in fact, like the relationship oh, okay. in uh, video game, video game related television is probably where you find like the grain alcohol of Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Olivia Munn's career is basically being the Manic Pixie Dream Girl of the video game world. That's not true. Olivia Munn is sardonic and 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 like low energy a lot. Yeah, no, it's probably yeah. Not in in the Legend of Zelda games, uh, Link's companion Navi is really the archetypal Manic Pixie. <laughs> dream girl yeah that's probably true i mean i would (laughs) i would point more towards like a g4 tech tv kind of um paradigm like more of a morgan webb less of an olivia munn but morgan webb also stepped up by hating you and by actually being good at video games (laughs) so it's like if natalie portman is a manic pixie dream girl in garden state who like shows uh scrubs do the value of life like morgan webb would be the one who shows up and like kicks him in the junk and calls him a jerk and then like (laughs) drives off notice how i didn't get us any chili peppers on that one by avoiding using foul language <laughs> but yes exactly <laughs> olivia munn gets a bum rap she isn't what people say she is like all that attractive <laughs> no no <laughs> oh. i always thought she's oh. a good street man to the crazy ryan seacresty little manic pixie like metrosexual dude that was next to her in uh in attack of the show um but whatever whatever we don't have to get into my trying to defend olivia mon again it's not a good use of my time or yours. <laughs> it's, it's inefficient uh, yes mark lee okay i don't have anything nearly as out of the box as twitch tv online you know game uh video so i'm going to just go back to the tried and true community season two with one of like the two or three television shows that I regularly watch, I'm really looking forward to see how they treat the uh, all the damage that was caused to Greendale by the the massive paintball tournament. Right, For those of you who aren't familiar, it's, uh, the community the last season of Community uh, ended with a, you know the massive paintball tournament that really kind of destroyed the school. To say it destroyed the school is not much of an overstatement. Am I right? 
No, that's fair. Right. And so it physically like, destroyed the building, like the walls were falling down and stuff. Okay, the walls weren't totally falling down, but paint is essentially everywhere. Yeah, massive amounts massive amounts of damage. Right to the point where I find it hard to believe that over a summer the school could be repaired and back up and running in any functional state. So <laughs> the, qu- the question is, right? It was episode one of the next season. Do they open up and everything's back to normal? And there's like a very brief kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird. They cleaned up really fast reference. Or is it going to be a complete poop hole still with paint all over the walls and like massive amounts of equipment and books and, uh, you know, other you know, uh, uh, computers and things like that still missing? Like, is their study hall room going to be uh, a complete mess? Or uh, will it be uh, back to back to normal. My theory, not to not to derail this totally. I know, right? But given the given the tone of the show so far, I think that I'll have no problem with just lampshading a season's worth of cleanup, and being like, "Hey, school's back to normal." Maybe every now and then they'll refer to it like with someone opening a locker and just a bucket of paint spilling out, <laughs> but, which would be cool. But otherwise, yeah, I mean they've. They've shown themselves willing to discard the limits of conventional reality in the name of sitcom-esque uh, styling in the past. I see no reason why they wouldn't hear. Yeah. I do. Oh, I always love the moment, and every show has done it from time to time. Well, every single one. But I do love the moment where the characters in the show kind of like grizzledly and exhaustedly remark about how nothing that is happening has any real consequences. I love those moments. <laughs> like, like the quintessential one for me is I think Frylock and Aqua Teen Hunger Force being like, this doesn't matter. None of this matters. <laughs> I guess like this the town is being blown up by lasers because it just knows that like next time it's all going to be fixed. None of it is. None of it has a purpose, and they just have this Sisyphean struggle of trying to push these fifteen-minute plots up these very steep hills that they set up for themselves. All right. But, so, so Parrot is calling it that. Uh, they're just going to pick it up and you know just continue on and explain it away very quickly. I'm hoping that uh, it, it causes some significant plot points, like. Um, they spent so much money on the cleanup that like tuition doubled or tripled or like they took out a, a loan on very poor terms and like the a bank comes and possesses Greendale or something like that. So we've cast our lots here. And uh, when's the season season premiere this week? Not soon enough. That's the answer. Not so soon enough. Stay tuned. Find out who's right. <laughs> John Parrott. What up, what up, what up? So, if you had asked this question prior to this weekend, I wouldn't have anything I was particularly excited about this coming TV season other than, you know, the usual, like, Breaking Bad, Burn Notice, Mad Men, uh, Boardwalk Empire, etc., etc. You know, all the stuff you'd expect from me. But, I flew to Pittsburgh and back this weekend on JetBlue, which is a great airline, and they have the in-seat TVs set in the back, and the TVs for the first... You know, 15 minutes while the plane is taxiing and, you know, before it reaches cruising altitude are set to a variety of advertising programming that you can't really turn off. So I am now very excited about Terra Nova coming this season on Fox. Ooh, is that the show uh, with dinosaurs? Yes. If you're not familiar with it, the premise of Terra Nova is that in the future, the Earth is so screwed up that the only possible solution to, I guess, the overpopulation and pollution problem is to send these, like, focus groups or whatever of humanity 85 million years into the past. Million years! (laughs) Into what is clearly a a less hostile environment, (laughs) because... The the, one with dinosaurs. 
in the Cretacean era with, you know, prehistoric bacteria and fungi and dinosaurs, it's safer than a world with some pollution in it that it, I don't know, whatever. So they're going to send them back in the past and somehow they'll, I don't know, like, I'm not even sure what the premise is because the sound was awful. I was watching these. So I just saw people going into glowing like stargates and then emerging in these sort of like wilderness retreats with the, the evil Colonel from avatar in charge. And then every now and then there's a, there's an assault rifle fight with raptors and stuff and people yelling at each other. And it looks like a train wreck and I'm really excited about it. (laughs) Train wrecks are exciting. That's why I saw unstoppable. Also, there seems to be really clear ethical issues with the the fact that you have screwed up the world so badly that, like, are you allowed to go back into the past? Therefore, like, your own existence will be good, but you're probably going to ruin human history. Like, like, we've all read A Sound of Thunder and seen the great movie with Sir Ben Kingsley, right? I don't know. I guess it's... (laughs) I guess if it's far enough in the past, how much can you really screw things up? Like, let's oh, say- I'm sure we get to season three of Terra Nova and we'll find out. <laughs> I can't wait. Oh, if only season three could be here now. <laughs> so what about Earth? What about Earth Two with the Noxima girl? Have we all forgotten it so quickly? Oh, yes, man. yes, we have. <laughs> Fair enough. Just wanted to check. Had that black guy in it too. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> what was his name? I gotta look him up. While you guys are talking, I have to go look up who the black guy in Earth Two was. Now, uh, continue. <laughs> I, uh, I am. I'm going to say I'm looking forward uh, more than any other television event. Uh, I'm looking forward to um, Vic Mackey Freedom Day. Yeah, well, you explain what it is, Matt, because it's your thing, really. So basically, I, a lot of us at Overthinking had really loved The Shield. Uh, wonderful show, phenomenally intense last season. And um, the, the last episode, spoiler alert for the whole Shield, basically. Am I okay to do this? Sure. Uh, so yeah, basically, Vic, Vic Mackey uh, commits these hugely monstrous crimes over the course of the Shield, and manages over the course of the last season to sort of finagle himself a deal uh, with the government that he's going to go undercover for them, but they have to grant him immunity for anything he's done in the past. And then, of course, after they grant him the deal, they find out all the stuff he's done in the past, and they're just horrified at what they did to him. And the only revenge that they can get because they, the deal is ironclad, is that they can force him to work a horrible desk job for the length of the deal, which is three years. And so that the end of the shield is that like he is um, he's safe from all his crimes, but he's taken off the street and he's made completely impotent and he has to wear a suit and work in an office. And it's sort of like, in a way, it's like he's won, but at what horrible cost? Because he has a job, much like all the fans of the shield do. Um, but then it, it finally occurred to me at the beginning of this year that the the length of his servitude was three years, and in fact, the shield, the final episode was November 2008, which means that this November and only two months is Big Mackey Freedom Day, the day that he is, is not only immune from all the crimes he committed during the shield, but he is a free agent. He can go do whatever he wants for the rest of his life, and, and God help the rest of the world. <laughs> oh, by the way, the black guy from Earth 2 is Sullivan Walker, <laughs> who also plays... Uh, 50 Cent's grandpa in Get Rich or Die Trying. The movie. 
<laughs> and he played the character of Yale in Earth 2 uh, in 21 of the episodes of the two-series season. Uh, two His name is Yale? Yeah, apparently. Is, I don't, is and Clan- Clancy Brown was also in that show. The I'm assuming that, that on Earth 2, that name is like Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming so as well. No, I'm psyched for Vic Mackey Freedom Day. I'm going to go uh, beat up some Salvadorans and ask them where the little girl is being kidnapped and held. <laughs> that's what he's going to be doing every week. Uh, no offense to any Salvadorans uh, who listen to the podcast. You are awesome and your country is beautiful. But Vic Mackey, you were antagonists of Vic Mackey's for much of The Shield uh, for reasons of that we'll go into in greater detail on perhaps a special podcast. <laughs> so, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, whether, whether you're a member of uh, Los Mags, or the Kings. The Pizlats, right? The one niners. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> sure. Oh, it's funny because that's how this city actually is. <laughs> what, uh, crawling with gangs? No, 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 no. With with police and abuses of power. No, they've, they've Oh that they've uh, they've cleaned a lot of that up. But they have a big PR problem. Um in that Vic Mackey is the most popular L.A. cop, uh, you know, ever. So, um, excellent. Here we are. You want to talk about TV or you want to do Drive? Let's, let's do Drive. Excellent. That's a great segue. Nailed that segue, by the way. Bam! <laughs> I'm talking about this thing or this other thing. You're unrelated. Go. Let's do All right. I'll, I'll, I'll jump right into it. So... Drive. Let's quickly. switch gears, as it were. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's strip the gears off the engine and sort of rattle down the freeway. Smoke coming out of the smoke coming out from under the hood. Drive. Uh, critically acclaimed. Uh, I, I believe it was at Cannes and it was at Toronto Film Festival, uh, which, is, which just ended this past week. Uh, I saw it today in the theaters, or so yesterday, for those of you just listening to the podcast live. And yeah, very good. Uh, very arty. I think the trailers for the American audiences sort of painted as more of a crime or action flick than it really is, because there's very little actual action or car chases that goes on uh, goes on during the movie. Uh, extremely bloody. Like, do not take your girlfriend to see this movie or yourself if you're not into exploding heads, because that happens more than once. <laughs> and- Seems like there's not a lot of driving and drive. There's not well actually I should I should uh, I should rephrase that. So it's just one, at normal speeds. <laughs> one, way, I feel <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. One of the things that struck me about the movie is the the opening sequence, as as happens sometimes in crime movies, like very much like the transporter, is our protagonist, Ryan Gosling, going on a, a job that's unrelated to the, the main thrust of the action, but it's just to demonstrate his competence and what he does for a living, et cetera, et cetera. But the weird thing about this is it, it starts off with, you know, a bit of a cat and mouse with him as the driver and the cops who are sort of putting a manhunt down over the city once they, they ID his car. And then there's an actual chase later on. But all of the shots in the opening sequence are either shot from the hood of the car that he's driving, uh, shot, from the, shot from the rear, so a, a shot of what's pursuing them, or a really tight close-up on Ryan Gosling's face. But there's none of these standard car chase shots of, you know, park the camera at one corner, you know, zoom in on the car as it approaches, pan, and then zoom out as it, as it drives away, which is which you would expect in almost any other car chase movie. And it is, it is so de rigueur that it's, it's almost not even worth commenting on, except for its complete absence here. So, and, and you'll see a lot of that in the, the other car chase scenes in the movie as well, which, 
which is interesting because it's also it also lends towards sort of the the European nature of the of the film itself. It's a very it's much more about the it's much more about the people involved than about the action or the spectacle. It uh it being di- directed by uh, Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. I don't know how to pronounce it. He was the guy who did Bronson and Valhalla Rising and a bunch of other uh, ultra-violent European films. And well, yeah, How did so- this movie get released? I'm listening to all these things you're describing. It's like it's cars <laughs> and it's neither fast nor furious. And it was released uh, close enough to the uh, season which we refer to as summer. And yet seems so not of that ilk. Well, I think it fits into the same indie mold. And as much as we, we distinguish between, you know, indie filmmaking and commercial filmmaking and these commercial heavily marketed films, uh, indie films are also very deliberately marketed as well. There is, there is a force that goes into how they're presented and packaged and shopped around to various uh, festivals and, and awards. I, I think the market for this is similar to the one that drove the movie uh, Brick, if you guys remember that one that was done by... Uh, God, I forget the director's name now, but it was the Joseph Gordon-Levitt film from a couple of years back, which was sort of, uh, it was supposed to be a, are you guys uh, are you guys familiar with this? Anyone? Yeah, Brick is great. It's like a film noir in a high school. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Ryan Johnson was the director. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was the protagonist. Ryan spelled in a weird way, right? Yes. Very, very weird Ryan Johnson. And it's it's that same idea. It's that let's let's take... Let's take what was originally a sort of pulpy B movie commercial concept, put an indie put an indie gloss, an indie spin on it, and you know shoot shoot a unique kind of movie this way and market it to the art house crowd. Uh, not to say that they're not to say that Brick is you know that cynical of a cashing in on it, but that's that's clearly what inspired it, and that's clearly the the market they're going for. That's clearly the appeal. I think Drive is something similar because. Just in terms of plot and content, it's it very much harkens back to the the grindhouse, uh, or or even further back to the the noir films of the fifties or the grindhouse films of the seventies and its ultraviolence. But because of the way it's shot and because of the quality of the actors involved in it, and some phenomenal performances all around by Carrie uh, Mulligan, Ryan Gosling, Brian Cranston, Christina Hendricks, just all these all these great names. Uh, Al- Albert Brooks is in there too. He's phenomenal. Brian uh, Cranston is a great name. Carrie Mulligan, for sure. I mean, Mulligan, that's an awesome name, right? Uh, <laughs> who are some of the uh, others? Christina, I mean, Christina is so-so, but Hendrix, okay, Hendrix could say it out of 10. You know, yeah. Brian Cranston is my favorite, though, and I, he's B-R-Y-A-N, right? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's like, that's 11 out of 10. That's extra bonus points for being a great name. Yeah, uh, although Ryan Ryan Gosling, I mean that's a good name because Gosling. What kind of what kind of name is that? And yet he's pretty cool. That's a really good name. It, yeah, for sure. All right, so Matt, Matt now, rather you're in the. Sorry, this is a brief <laughs> go uh, digression into names of actors. But you're in the biz, right? Like, how does Matthew Rather go off? Do you need to like get a nom to stage? I God, I hope not. 
because it's, <laughs> it's, it's too late for that. My name is already registered with multiple uh, multiple performance unions. But I, you know, I did have that thought. My my middle name happens to be Bernard, and I thought, hey, maybe I should go by Matthew Bernard professionally. And that, you know, I don't know. Doesn't that sound sort of French? Doesn't that sound kind of like ah, yes, it's Matthew Bernard delivering another performance in the ultra-violent movie that is a throwback to the Grindhouse, um, but. <laughs> You know. I would watch that. <laughs> yeah, well, that guy would probably be a lot better than me. But um, yeah, but no, uh, it's going to have to be Matthew Rather. No, Rather with a W. I mean, W R A T H. Sorry, let me spell it for you. Just forget everything we've said so far. Let me spell it. W R A. I got a suggestion for you, Matt. It's not yeah. too late because there's yeah. a great last name. It's really, you know, we'll, we'll sum it up all for you. Is it Mulligan? No, it's Cruz. C U R I S E. Matt Cruz, think about it. Uh, Done. This this conversation reminds me of the McSweeney's piece that was like terrible email addresses, and it was like you know uh, Mark dot Lee dot one word dot no dot. I think I think Dave I I think Schechner was going to do one of those. I think like he had like Dave Schechner one word no dot as as an email address and was going to do that. Uh, what he settled on was good. We won't say it on the air. If you want to email Schechner, Schechner at overthinking it is the way to do it. Uh, anyway, Drive, uh, very good movie, uh, very well edited, and interesting sort of 80s throwback soundtrack and design, even though it's clearly set in the modern day, and extremely violent, uh, definitely worth seeing, although not with people who wouldn't like exploding heads and fountaining blood. Oh, so when you said the 80s throwback vibe to it, um, yes, I meet my eyes were immediately drawn to. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page of it now, and uh, the the p- movie poster, and I think all the marketing for this movie has drive in a hot pink cursive type of thing. Yes, yeah, kind of kind I, of a girly uh, treatment of it. Yeah, all so many things come in here. This just all this does not compute. You know, this like Euro, you know, indie thing, but with the extreme ultra violence and then this 80s well, I mean, thing on top of that as well. Like, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not particularly girly. I mean, it's, it's very reminiscent of To Live and Die in L.A., for instance, if you've, if you've seen that movie. The, the title, title track for, or the title card for that is in a very similar font. And the, the soundtrack in particular, a lot of the artists are, you know, as happens in indie, indie pop, they're contemporary artists who do a deliberately synthesized 80s throwback sound, like uh, Kavinsky and Love Fox or College or Desire. They're, they, they have a very heavily synthesized sound. And you listen to it and it's like, are you sure this isn't a Britpop new wave hit from like 1984? And no, it's a, it's a relatively recent one. So yeah, it's, it's all very interesting stuff. And it's also, rather, to tie it back to a discussion that we were having the last time I was on the podcast... I think it's a deliberate homage in a couple of ways to uh, the Melville film, The Samurai. God, those movies are so good. The Melville movies like The Samurai and um, what's the one? It's called, it's, uh, the English title is like The Stool Pigeon or The Rat or The Fink or something like that. It's like Le Duo or something in French. I, I don't speak French. And that's, that's Belmondo and not uh, Alain Delon. They are so cool. Those movies are so cool. The, the particular the particular image that evoked it for me is that Ryan Gosling's character has this very antiquated, like a very 80s style racing jacket with this weird like orange scorpion on the back that he wears throughout the entire movie. Even as, you know, as the movie reaches its climax, it gets more and more blood stained. 
but he'll he'll do things like walk into restaurants wearing it, which is deliberately odd. And it's I think it's a deliberate homage to the the, the tan trench coat that Alain Delon wears throughout the entirety of Le Samurai, even when it would get him into trouble. Like when he shows up at a police lineup and the police are like, hmm, we're looking for a guy in a tan trench coat who just shot someone in a nightclub. Uh, where were you, sir? But it's, you know, it's a deliberate image because, yeah, you know... I was at the dry cleaners. I was getting my tan trench coat, getting the blood out of it. Uh, <laughs> oh, stop, stop, stop. I, I mean... But yeah, he's a samurai. It's his armor. He can't take it off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's evocative. And it's it's probably a deliberate throwback. So... Life yeah. 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 You know, if you love movies like this that have that sort of 80s vibe and the kind of head exploding with the ultraviolence, I really recommend Scanners. David Cronenberg, uh, which is uh, and Scanner Cop, which is not a direct sequel, but which uses the characters that were created by David Cronenberg and tells the story of a cop, uh, which is why it's called Scanner Cop instead of Scanners. And Scanners actually stars uh, Admiral Michael Ironside of Ironside. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> As an evil psionic. Now, it's a story of psionics who have this sort of. It's very uh, postmodern. Their minds uh, exert control over their environment in like a, more than a semantic way. It's sort of a, about meaning and, and, and sort of interpretation, right? It's about people who use their brains to explode other people's heads. Uh, it is really what it's about. Instead of people on fire and things like Wait, that. Explore or explode? Explode. Like, like boom. Like, I don't like you. Urgh, focus on me. Play the music. Your head explodes because I'm well, a psychic. Inner space, <laughs> inner space is the movie about exploring other people's heads. Yeah, this is true. This is very true. Or Herman's Head is the television <laughs> show about exploring one man's head. But yeah, I couldn't contribute much, but I wanted to pitch that gem in there because if you haven't seen Scanners or Scanner Cop, you are missing one of the best head-exploding movies ever. Uh, it's really up there for head-exploding fans, so give, give it a chance. <laughs> Inner Space, Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, Meg Ryan, you know, those are some good names. Robert Picardo, now there's a name. That's a guy with a good name, Robert Picardo. <laughs> make it make it a so uh, <laughs> and a gajo and gajo <laughs> manja manja number one <laughs> so can we talk about ryan gosling is this like the late summer slash early fall of ryan gosling what with the eyes of march coming up soon yeah, probably. I mean, it, he he was already sort of a, a critical darling beforehand, but now he's got these two very very academy targeted films coming out back to back and is he is it just these two is he in a third i don't know he's in a ton of movies that guy is a super actor he's like you know he'll be making movies for a long time is is he a super actor i mean do you not like him i don't i mean all i really know him from is the notebook he's he's the notebook guy to me (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, you I gotta mean, like, see. Like, you gotta see Half Nelson, and you gotta see Lars and the Real Girl, and you gotta see Blue Valentine. Like, see, it, I've never seen any. Every time I, I see his name in print, all I get hear is like Andy Samberg being like, "I love those cupcakes." Like Big Adams loves Gosling. <laughs> he also like. Yeah. The, the, hey, maybe this could be a subject for the show because we haven't found one yet. Um, the. Uh, 
Like the the quality of an actor. Look, we had a, we had a perfectly fine subject in talking about the Sarah, the uh, Sarah Jessica Parker film. I don't know how she does it, but then we never got on topic with it because we we couldn't figure out how she does it. <laughs> I do I do love the podcast where we talk about a movie for the whole time that none of us have ever seen. <laughs> anyway, interrupted you. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, please, it's probably the best thing the best thing you could do to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so about how she does it. How does she do it? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. She- <laughs> Let's make a movie. Let's explore her head. Um, yeah. the, uh, that actually probably would be a better movie. No, um, so, like, the, the idea that I, that I want to suggest is that the quality of acting in a movie is not related really to the quality of... Uh, of the movie, right? The Notebook. Mm-hmm. That is to say, uh, Ryan Gosling can do a really great job of portraying a person in love and the kind of trials and tribulations of that in The Notebook. And The Notebook, the story uh, can be, you know, hackneyed and predictable. The dialogue can be boring. All those things can be true, and yet Ryan Gosling still still can give a good performance. And Rachel McAdams also, who is, by the way, a pretty damn good actor. Um, uh, and you know was great in, for example, uh, Slings and Arrows, the Canadian TV series uh, about the theater company, um, right? So I, th- I think we have to be able to separate these these things out the way that we can separate out like art direction or you know I don't know costumes or something or other other aspects uh, of the film. We kind of talk about the the writing, the directing, and the acting as if it's it's all of a piece, and it isn't necessarily all of a piece because there are you know different people doing. Uh, d- doing different jobs there. Um, it, it is kind of hard to separate who supplied what, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, but I, I don't know. He, I think he can be a good actor even in a, even in a bad movie or, or maybe a predictable movie, right? So my favorite example of people not being able to overcome that are, uh, you know, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman in the Star Wars prequels, <laughs> who are by all accounts are pretty good actors, but uh, deliver completely wooden and ineffective performances due to George Lucas's poor writing and directing. I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think that part of why the performances are terrible is that the fundamental production design of how the movie was shot was really stupid, right? Like, well, I mean, it's not George just Lucas's poor directing, right? I mean, like, what else do you well, call it's that? Producing too is really yeah, bad. You mean, yeah, and you don't mean production design in the sense of like the arc direction of the movie. You mean the way the thing was planned. You mean the like the project management of that production. I'm, I'm talking primarily about the mise-en-scene, as oh, it were. Okay, never mind. You do, mean pro- you do mean production design. I, yeah, I like just up. that everything is done on treadmills and inside of green screen rooms, right? And there's no room to move for any of it, and everything's very static, right? And these are constraints that are placed upon the project by virtue of its production, <laughs> not really its direction. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, when they had to play like a love scene, they were doing so to like a green a ping pong ball at the end of a large stick. Right, exactly. Well, like if you compare the way that, and I mean, I bring this up because it's the only one I've seen it of, but if you compare the way they did the digital effects in like Game of Thrones, where we still take them outside and we put the green screen up behind them outside rather than put everything in a small room, you can still have people run around. They have more mobility, right? Like you got the sense the camera couldn't track them if they wanted to move. And, and I guess maybe that's blocking and directing as well, but there's no mobility. There's no, there's no freedom because of, and the, the lack of freedom in the performance. Yes, you have to hit your mark as an actor, but it seems like to me, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson is boring in that movie, right? Like Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> plays like a boring, uninteresting, flat character. Um, and not even uninteresting, because it's, it's fair sometimes to call some of his characters uninteresting, but they, at least they yell. But he has no passion. <laughs> right? He's a Jedi. He's not really allowed to like get like, you know, like lose his temper. So I guess that's why the movie is so- Or use the F word for that matter. 
Exactly. <laughs> well, I was hoping, you know, that this was the, the big Blu-ray release was this weekend, and I was hoping they'd finally add some of the F-bombs back to the... <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we're going to get that. To, get, to um, give another example of, of an actor who gives a, a good performance in a, in a bad movie, because this actually came up in conversation over the weekend, was uh, the Masters of the Universe movie, if you remember that one. With, uh, <laughs> Wait, are, with, you say with Dolph Lundgren? Or? Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella as Skeletor. Huh. I mean, he's, he's trying, he's chewing the scenery. I mean, really but, but like, would you hold that up as like, he elevates the material above where it should be? Well, no. Well, sure. I mean, I, if where it should be is like negative 50 and it's negative 45, <laughs> you know what I mean? The net, the net contribution of the actor is to elevate the material five points. And that's not, well, nothing. I, I'm just, I, I, that's, I, not I would, that's I five say, points. I, I wouldn't say he elevates the material because that, I mean, that, that implies like, you know, one man lifting a California King mattress over his head, like, <laughs> ah, with my soul muscular strength. No, that's like a 12 person job. the jump. power of like, box spring. <laughs> like one, okay. one, one man can't do that. But Langella, and we had this conversation over the weekend with, with some friends and I, it's like, you know, you show up on the set. It's day one. You get this script, and you realize that this is going to be a turkey. And you can do one of two things. You can either phone it in and make life miserable for everybody, or you can just really have fun with it, like really chew the scenery and, and give it your best effort, even if you think the the resulting product is going to be some kind of crappy, which it was. And, you know, you'll have fun. Maybe it'll turn out to be a hit, in which case, you know, there there was no shame and and not holding back and you get paid anyway yeah you're gonna make those boat payments <laughs> yeah, frankly jello's gonna eat um i think i, think I have the all-time best example of this by the way and i, I hope you'll all agree with me um raul julia as m bison oh yes yes i was about to suggest that oh thank because you the, the as, as movie, as we, as we terrible that. movie um but raul julia makes he pretty much makes it a good movie by, and, and it's all the more impressive that like he's in like late stages of terminal stomach cancer <laughs> while he does the movie, um, oh, and he's still like clearly having so much fun that it's almost like it almost becomes this like uplifting metatextual like uh like testament to like the power of the human spirit that, like this is the way he chose to confront death that like i mean and and it's not just like i mean it, it, it's it's not just like he did it for the money he did it because he had a kid and. He wanted his kid to like like get an action figure of him, and he wanted to do like a popcorn movie that people would like. And in a way, it's like I don't know if you guys ever saw like Sullivan's Travels, which is this old Preston Sturgis movie about a guy who makes comedies all his life and really longs to make this big serious drama. And at the end of the movie, he comes to the realization that making comedies is a is a more noble thing because people need popular entertainment and especially you know it was made in the midst of the depression and the whole thing is that like artsy movies are all well and good but like what 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 really you know makes the world go around is like fun movies that like people need to get through their miserable lives and i feel like like watching Raul julian street fighter he's like you know what i've i've done my like critically acclaimed movies and like now i want to do something like fun and like swing from a rope and like punch chocolate <laughs> in the face and and he does it with relish. <laughs> okay. you, Matt, you brought something that, that's going to cause me to take this like totally off the rails. Yeah, go All ahead. Right. So you you mentioned before uh, what an old timey actor, you know, like about like what depression era, right? Yeah, they, they don't want to see sad movies. They want to see things that uh, you know that are uplifting, right? And before you said depression era, my my mind thought to like what you know, like the you know people don't want to see Holocaust movies. 
Right. <laughs> so my question is, what were Holocaust movies before the Holocaust? Ah, oh, let me see. What, what was what, the, what was the pre-Holocaust? The equivalent of a Holocaust movie before the Holocaust. Uh, the, the, the Civil War, maybe? Except not, though. Like, you see The Birth of a Nation? You know, that's sort of like, it, sure, there's a tragedy to it, but it's also like... You so know. wait, what aspect... But Holocaust movie is a very charged thing, because yeah, a Holocaust sure. movie has a lot of different aspects, right? Like, you could say a Holocaust movie is a movie that panders for awards, right? Because there's lots of movies that have won, like, lots of awards for being about Holocaust movies, right? And not that they were bad, but that's one attribute that they have, is they tend to be... When, they tend to be prestige pictures, right? Like, particularly in the, docu- in the long subject documentary space, where it seems like there's always some movie about the Holocaust that's nominated for a documentary long subject like every year, right? Despite there being only five movies that are nominated in this whole in this whole oeuvre of film or whatever. Um, you could say that it's a movie that uh, is sad and is sort of like stereotypically sad, like always incredibly sad. And that's right? what I'm like, going for, yeah. Okay. Or, or you could say that it's like, yeah, something that like people aren't allowed to criticize for, because of social norms, right? And, uh, I always say that I never want to put Schindler's List on my list of top movies because I can never negotiate its place with other movies. Uh, and not, I don't resent that. I don't see this as a negative. I see it as an aspect of the discourse, right? Like, it's just not the same way. You can't talk about Jurassic Park the same way you talk about Schindler's List. Although I can talk about Jurassic Park the same way I talk about Steel Magnolias just fine, um, which is perhaps a little strange. But uh, but yeah, there you go. So, so you're saying in terms of <laughs> in terms of sadness, the dinosaurs were totally unrealistic. <laughs> I would say honestly that in terms of in terms of like just being really sad, and in terms of being like sweepingly dramatic, it would be movies about either the immediate antebellum South or like the South during the civil war from like a sympathetic perspective like gone with the wind like gone with the wind is a holocaust movie right well, because it's about the death of an entire way of life right that a lot of the people who are watching it are the children of the people who went through it or grandchildren of the people who went through it right i mean that's the thing that always disturbs me about gone with the wind is that his tone is sort of like isn't it a shame that like all this wonderful plantation life had to be swept yeah, I was away. About, I was about to say that I was about to say the same thing. There's a kind of ambivalence about the the you know destruction of the antebellum South. Um, peculiar. For you, well, you're ambivalent about it. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm saying that creeps in, that creeps into those movies. You know what I mean? That is to say, it's it, there's a kind of nostalgia that for the you know for those old days, peculiar institution and all. Um, yeah. I would say it's more than an ambivalence. I'd say that people actually like the Tara. Like, people want to live in Tara, and there were people who lived in the South that really liked it, right? And they're real people. They're not fictions. I mean, yeah, they fought a war to try to keep other people enslaved, and certainly I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, match their opinions or their political philosophies. But certainly I would hesitate to say that, that nobody thinks that, the, the, you know, that Tara was a good place, right? Yeah, so, th- so right, so that the, you can't kind of say that about, about the Holocaust, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, um, it, it's a, it's a stand in for a kind of absolute moral evil, right? Which is, yeah. you know, and hence God, hence Godwin's law. But, um, in a way it's kind of, it, in a way it kind of becomes, in, in a way, <laughs> yeah, I'm about to drop one of Sam Jackson's famous F-bombs here. Um, the, uh, the, the result though, is that it's, it's sort of it, non-artistic, right? That is to say you you get away with with treating treating people like not people you know um uh in the holocaust because they they become a kind of symbol of absolute evil or of man's inhumanity to man um 
right now. I haven't necessarily. They're, they're, they're means to an end rather than a Kantian end in themselves. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, narratively, that's, I think that's right. Um, and it's hard, you know, it's hard, it's hard because I don't, I actually don't want to go watch a movie where like we really find out about the inner Hitler. Uh, I, I I don't think like in Herman's head when there's that Hitler guy that lives in there with all of them for the whole season. Did you guys see the third season of Herman's head? It's pretty dark. (laughs) I wish season three could be here now, but, um, I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to watch that movie, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that everyone uh, gets a pass, right? For not, for for doing something essentially because it's it's just absolutely bad. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, Mark, you know, I, I think another answer to your question about like what was the Holocaust before there was the Holocaust in in Hollywood film, uh, World War One was actually a much bigger deal before the existence of World War Two. It was the Great War. <laughs> Well, sort of um, like, sort of like the Nintendo sixty four, like the Super Nintendo, right? Like, yeah, they're like people are like, man, the GameCube is awesome. Um, <laughs> it was, it was. Um, I mean, like, like honestly, the very first Academy Awards. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it now. Was like this 1927. The winner was Wings about World War One fighter pilots. Two years later, it was all quiet on the Western Front. So then, in a way, it's like if you wanted to make a big serious movie, because I mean, obviously, it was the carnage was astronomical. There was nothing to compare it to in that time. Yeah, it was the first instance of like really industrialized human killing yeah so i mean i I think really sort of like looking that in the teeth and i mean i I think muted by the fact that like they just weren't able to portray violence in that way on screen that they just it it wasn't it wasn't something that like you know you could show in a movie theater like what world war one was really like but still like the sort of you know telling about um you know, like like just how how tragic the whole thing was was sort of like the 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 old school Hollywood way of like teeing up the uh, you know the prestige picture. Mm. So I want to bring this uh, connect this to um, the movie that Pete and I saw, The Debt, right? Mm. And uh, someone in the in a comments thread in the in the open thread comments open open thread comments thread uh, made the su- suggestion that. Um, there's a bit of a laziness going on with the Holocaust movie. And Matt, I think this is only lines what you're talking about, right? Um, in which, like, you know, presenting the fact that they're going off hunting this Nazi and, uh, you know, they've got him, you know, chained to a post and, like, you know, it's sort of like, it's sort of a too easy of a thing, you know, to just put this guy here and be like, oh, he's like the embodiment of evil, right? And uh, Matt, is that sort of what uh, what you're getting at? Well, it... Yeah, I mean, it like the drama, you know, I don't know, I don't mean to get all spiritual and stuff, but sort of drama at its best deals with people like like people, you know, I mean, never, never sort of treats a person like any anything less than a sort of fully realized and, and complex person. And maybe that's maybe that's too high a bar to to hold every work of dramatic art to. But it's it's kind of systematic in uh, in Holocaust movies that you don't um uh, you know that that these uh, that these bad guys in the Holocaust movies are sort of are are narratively are means to an end or right know, are, so yeah yeah and, and uh, in the comments thread I uh, tried to defend or, or rather say that you know just the fact because the fact that they're you know going off and hunting this this Nazi and he's the the main bad guy of it that by itself doesn't really make the movie lazy per se mm-hmm. and more more saying that like you know this is just sort of the most recent reference point that our movies and our storytelling keep going back to 
And until something else comes along that's worse than that, we're just going to keep going back and and you know mining this uh, this treasure trove of you know emotion and storytelling. So, yeah. so it's, a, it's more it's like it is what it is rather than saying like it's necessarily good or bad. I mean, I've seen movies that have lazy Nazi villains in them, and The Dead didn't really have a lazy Nazi villain in it. Like Hellboy has a lazy Nazi villain, right? Where it's like, oh, it's a Nazi robot assassin great you know like fine and it's in rasputin is in it too right or is that anastasia <laughs> i just forget anyway like no no hellboy has a, a a robot a clockwork steampunk nazi assassin right he's pretty badass yeah, he is but the fact that he's a nazi is very much relying on this i'm not saying look matt let me make it perfectly clear i am not saying that the steampunk robot nazi assassin is not badass right? he's perfectly badass let, this, let, let the record show i'm just saying that in that movie the fact that he's a nazi is being put out there as, as a sort of a shortcut to accessing that extremity of emotion right, right. whereas this is a movie that's about sort of national historical narrative in like a very active and self-conscious way the debt not Hellboy. Hellboy is not. <laughs> let, just let the record show. Hellboy is not about national historical it's, it's narrative. About coming, it's about coming to terms with America's exploitation of half-human, half-demon breed children with giant stone fists. It's a, it's a deep <laughs> Searching moral inventory. Look, look, Ron Perlman went to his agent and he's like, I right now need you to hook me up with a project where I get to make out with Selma Blair. How is this remotely possible? Under what circumstances in what movie can I make out with Selma Blair? He's like, well, you could be some sort of demon. <laughs> got it. Nailed it. And maybe she's got some sort of fire magical power. No, uh, no, the, the, the Nazi in the dead is, is, he does stand in for something, for a bunch of complex, specific things. And the scenes with him are, are pretty specific and complicated. But, or, or the Nazi yeah. in apt pupil, or the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, those are movies that are about the historical legacy of Nazism and also the sort of next generation historical legacy of, like, you know, the, the people that were left behind. Right. Uh, well, um, also about the about also about the third and fourth generation historical legacy yeah. of of our kind of fascination with this and our yeah. our sort of drive to define ourselves in terms of this event and also our kind of morbid fascination uh, uh, with this. Right. Right. Like at the end of Bionic Commando, the giant disembodied floating head of Hitler appears, <laughs> and you have to use your robot arm to try to fight him. That might be a little closer to what we're talking about in terms of like a forced or reductive reference to Nazism. Um, not to spoil the end of Bionic Commando because it's perfectly reasonable. That game is so freaking hard that it's perfectly reasonable that you've been playing it nonstop from like 1988 until the present and have still not reached the disembodied floating head of Hitler that you have to fight. Whatever company game. made Bionic Commando was like trying to go for the Academy Award before they realized that it bit video games are not eligible for <laughs> yeah because he's handicapped because he's disabled right he's and disabled because... and there's nazis in it it's a perfect storm <laughs> exactly exactly um wait why hasn't somebody adapted that for the screen <laughs> why hasn't someone adopted by commando for the screen yeah there That's... are so many video games that have been adapted into movies that seems like like a no-brainer basically because you have so many cool arm swinging shots, it right? Could, like, it, could work, it could work as a sort of very indie art house film a la Drive, where it's more about, you know, Ryan Gosling sort of cruising around whatever that fictional European country was and staring moodily into the distance. And then every now and then swinging from a, a skyscraper and shooting a Nazi in the head and then... Just, <laughs> 
covered in blood, lurching from one scene to another, you know, sort of grimly staring out the window. You know how this movie would be made, though. It would be like, hey, look, you need to be the Bionic Commando. I don't want to be the Bionic Commando. You have to. It's your <laughs> destiny. You're the chosen. I don't want to. This isn't the life that I asked for. I didn't ask for this robot arm. Throw the robot arm the in the robot garbage. robot arm has chosen you. No, if you Only want to defeat Hitler. Joe. The prophecy <laughs> has told us. There's a prophecy. You have to listen to the prophecy about the robot arm. You Pour have on a choice, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> You have a choice to do the thing I'm telling you to do. You're not your father, Ryan Gosling. (laughs) You're not him. You don't have to live by his rules. Ryan Gosling, if you don't stand for something, you'll swing for anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Ryan Gosling, sometimes you have a choice, and that choice is whether to quit or whether to continue. (laughs) Nine, eight, seven... Six. Yeah. Oh, the sad thing is, we would all watch the crap out of this movie. <laughs> so, guys, um, how does she do it? How does he do it with a robot arm? That's how he does it. That's how he does it. Robot arm. Nailed it. Done. Uh, I was going to say with uppers. Oh, with uppers. Okay. Fair you know, cane, speed, various other drugs that up you. <laughs> so, Keep you going. Uh, Good. Um, well, let's let's leave our conversation there for the day. Uh, I have only to say that next week is the third. Wait, it's the what is it? It's the it's the third anniversary the, uh, of. Um, right, isn't that funny? Like at, on your third birthday, you're starting your fourth year. That's always confusing to me. Shouldn't you be one when you are born? Yeah, anyway. and, and when you live on the fourth floor, people always say you have to walk up four flights of stairs. You don't. You have to walk up three flights of stairs to get to the fourth floor because you start on the first floor. Absolutely. What? Buildings, buildings nope. without a 13th floor just throw the whole calculus off. If you're walking the stairs to the 14th floor, you have some problems. <laughs> you get your elevator. Yeah, but anyway. the elevator is broken. That's your problem. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yes, next week is the third anniversary. We started doing weekly, uh, weekly episodes with the, um, with the 13th episode of, uh, of the Overthinking Podcast, which was, I believe that's Mint Milano's. Someone can fact check. Ah, uh, yes. Mint Milano's. Yes. And there is still a standing invitation to any member of the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, <laughs> you will receive a box of Mint Milano's from Pete Fensel if you come on the Overthinking Podcast. But um, and that goes for the RZA, the Jizza, Raekwon, the Chef, You God, Master Killer, any, any of the whole gang. Yeah. How many uh, of them are there? Plus. There's lots of them. That's the point. They're a clan. They're a number clan. the number the stars, Matt. Number the stars. <laughs> just just quick, quick fact check. Episode 13 was crossing sections off the map. Oh, sorry. Where we offended various uh, geographic regions of the Earth. Episode 16 <laughs> was in the Milano's. Okay. There you go. Um. But 13 was the one where we started doing it weekly, and we've released a podcast every week since then, and sometimes more, because we've done some, uh, some supplements. I don't think I've, I've ever kept anything up for three years in my life. Relationships? You know? Oh. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's, that's not true. Sorry, darling. But the, uh, uh, <laughs> that's the test of the health of my relationship. <laughs> my girlfriend listens to this show and still can stand me. 
Um, the, uh, the celebration is next week. So we have one, uh, we got one suggestion in email for, for what to do. And we're sort of planning, we're sort of planning, uh, we won't do a clip show. That was one idea I had is to, you know, to, to celebrate our unbroken streak, uh, break the streak and just, uh, you know, just do a, uh, shades of gray esque clip show. You remember shades of gray, the last episode of the second season of star Trek, the next generation. Uh, conveniently is that where like Riker is having like some medical issue? Yes, he's having he's having about three and a half minutes of original medical issue that forces him to experience about thirty eight minutes of flashback. <laughs> but they're like all Riker. Like, why were they like? Let's make this a Riker centric flashback episode. Yeah, because that was, yeah. it was still, that was when it was still like a well, not when he was still. Sorry, he was always, but that was when he was a huge sex object. So it was like, oh, let's focus on him and his steamy bearded face, or was it tree beard? I, no, I can offer an alternative theory, which is that he was probably <laughs> the only one available on the days of shooting that they wanted to do to shoot the film of the drills going into his brain, yeah. and everybody else was on vacation. Right, like like uh, Levar Burton had booked out to shoot a bunch of reading rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> and Patrick Stewart was like, "F this, I'm out of here." Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, but no, we won't do that. We will come with an original episode. But if you want to uh, join the conversation or tell us what to do next week, you can uh, email us at podcast at overthinking it dot com. Call or text two zero three two eight five six four zero one, or leave a comment in the comments section on the show notes. Uh, these last couple episodes have been really good. Have been uh, really good uh, discussions in the comments. I'm I'm grateful that we uh, have such great. Listeners who bring so much to the table themselves. So uh, until then, oh, also here's a public service announcement: Downton Abbey is back. Uh, in case you you know gobbled the whole thing up on Netflix last year, um, I, I don't think it's available in the U.S. market, so you have to go find it on the waffles somewhere. Uh, but uh, you know you can get uh, episode one tonight as we as we record this. Um, Anything else? No, gentlemen. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening, listeners. And until next week, you can find us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Why have they not made a movie of Castle Wolfenstein? I think that they would accuse the producers of treating the subject with insufficient seriousness around the time that the floating Hitler showed up inside that giant cyborg robot thing with the Gatling guns for hands. But, it but that's just fine without the Hitler robot, right? You can make Hellboy. Like nobody cares about yeah. Nazis in like pop movies. Yeah, or if he's a cartoon, like in like if it's a comedy or something or an anime, maybe you could do it. Also, Wolfenstein's a pretty stupid name. Like it's the it's like, like the wolf rock is that what it is? I mean, that, it, because maybe truly wolf does not mean wolf in German, right? Right. Uh, that's probably a good point. Wolf, like wolf, 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 wolf. Maybe, oh, it's the full maybe movie. Too. Maybe she just has a very good system for tracking her to do list. <laughs> <laughs>